morning. <laughs> the title of this morning's message is Rescued. This morning I want to talk to you about being rescued, past tense. We have been rescued. It's already done. Our Father has rescued us from all the power, presence, and judgment of sin through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we sang a song by Lauren Daigle called Rescue. I like the song. That's why we sang it. <laughs> I like the song. <laughs> I just wish it was written from a more of a finished work perspective. <laughs> like instead of the song having God say, I will rescue you, it could have God say, I am rescuing you. I am in the midst of your situation. I am at work on your behalf. Because that's the truth <laughs> of who our Father really is in our life. He is always working on our behalf. He's always in the midst of everything. Even though I like the song when we sing it, I have to mentally decide how to deal with the song's perspective. The song's perspective is really one of separation. It's written as if God is in heaven far away and we are separated from him here on earth. Because the, the song says, I will send out an army to find you. I will rescue you. But you know what I would say if God said that? When? <laughs> when are you going to rescue me? <laughs> what are you doing exactly? <laughs> but see, if we understand we already have been rescued. And that rescue is what causes rescuing to happen. <laughs> That's why I would prefer if the lyrics said, I am rescuing you. I am in the midst. I am working behind the scenes. I think that would be much more comforting. <laughs> Especially since science says that our brains really don't appreciate future tense words. According to science, what our brain does when it hears a future tense word, it takes it and files it under something called not real. <laughs> if it's in the future, it doesn't exist. It's not real. That's why we have such a hard time convincing our hearts sometimes. No, that's why we have to go back to no. Everything I need for life and godliness has been granted. <laughs> I have an account with all my needs in it. <laughs> all the answers. It isn't a pure fantasy. And that's what our brain does. When we say, I'm going to go do so-and-so, your brain goes, yeah, right. <laughs> I am going to start a new exercise program. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> our brain doesn't believe us. <laughs> now, it, it does make sense if you think about it. Because what is actually true is that that which we see is in the future or consider in the future our brain doesn't actually believe it. It says it's not real. It doesn't exist right now. Years ago, I watched a, a minister on TBN give a testimony. He had a friend who had been gravely ill. And of course, he went to see him a lot. And every time he went to see his friend, his friend would say, God's going to heal me. I just know it. God's going to heal me. I just know it. And he got sicker and sicker and sicker. And the minister said to him, you know, believing that God is going to do something is hope. But it's not faith. 
our brain says if it's in the future, it isn't real. I can't actually receive that. We actually don't receive it. We said, no, it's in the future. Someday I'll have that. That's why it's important to understand finished work. Where is our healing? Finished work. Our brain and our heart can believe in something that's already done. It already exists. So the minister was very sad by his friend's confession. <laughs> God will do this. I just know it. He told his friend, faith is now. Faith is always in the present tense. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is. That's reality. If I push whatever I'm believing for into the future, I've entered into hope and not into faith. He told his friend, faith is believing in what God has already done in the past and then believing that whatever is already done in the past is available to us in the now. Now faith receives. He also reminded his friend what Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say unto you, whatever, I love that, whatever things you desire when you pray, Believe that ye receive them, and we could insert now, <laughs> and ye shall have. Yes, the answer, the manifestation may be in the future tense, but it has to be real to us now. Jesus said, believe now and receive now, and the manifestation will surely follow. Unfortunately, this minister's friend could not get unstuck from that future tense. He couldn't believe God had already rescued him from sickness. He'd already provided that for him. He believed if you ask and pray and, you know, beg and, <laughs> and make deals, then God will act. But everything that God currently does is based on the fact that he's already finished the works of salvation. And it is that finished work salvation that he invites us to take and receive. Now, his friend received the ultimate healing. <laughs> he went into heaven. But that wasn't the healing he was actually wanting. But he just couldn't get his brain to believe that God had already rescued him from the sickness. So, I personally prefer past tense and present tense words in my songs. <laughs> But recently, the Lord used this song to comfort my heart regarding the direction that our country appears to be heading, politically, financially, and morally. When I was worshiping to this song one day, I was thinking about how can I change these words <laughs> so that they better reflect a finished work perspective. And the only thing I could come up with was changing it to a present tense and getting rid of the future tense. So that the song would have God saying, I am rescuing you. I am in the midst. I am at work on your behalf. Believe that I am because I am the great I am. And I am always in the present tense. I'm always available right now. <laughs> so what the Lord did for me while I was worshiping was he let me see his heart for America. I envisioned God singing this over our nation. I will rescue you. Just ask. I will rescue you. <laughs> I will send out an army of angels. I will fight for you. 
God's desire is always to minister life and life more abundant, even to an entire nation. <laughs> it is his desire to rescue everyone. And it reminded me of what Jesus had said about Israel just before he died. The last week in his life, Jesus said this in Luke 13, 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who have been sent to you, like President Trump. <laughs> How often would I have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you refused. God wanted to rescue all of Israel, and Israel said, no thanks, we don't need your rescue. We'll handle this ourselves. God's heart is always to rescue us. God wants to rescue even the ones that don't want to be rescued. <laughs> and that's because that's just who he is. He is our rescuer. He is our deliverer. He is our savior. In fact, he's actually the savior of everyone, even of those who don't know him. Now, if you have rocks, don't throw them. <laughs> Let me explain. <laughs> I do not believe in universalism. Universalism says in the end, everybody is saved because God is good and he wouldn't allow people to go to a place called hell. And I don't believe in inclusionism. Inclusionism says everybody is saved right now, they just don't know it. <laughs> the word of God doesn't say that. But the word of God does say that God is the savior or rescuer of all men. 1 Timothy 4.10 says this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. Especially, which means to the greatest degree, especially to the greatest degree of those that believe. Our Father and our Jesus together are the Savior of all men. But there is a difference between those who believe and those who don't believe. Our Father has done everything in and through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that needed to be done in order for all men to be saved. In Christ, all of the sin of the world has already been dealt with on the cross. All the legal responsibility for the sin of the entire world was transferred to Jesus and then taken into death by Jesus. Jesus is the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. It doesn't say the sin of believers. Uh-oh. <laughs> it says the sin of the world. John 1.29, John the Baptist says, Behold, look, consider, pay attention, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the whole world. Did God take away the sin of the whole world? Yes, he did. Most believers don't really believe that's true. I think what they hear is, behold the Lamb of God who will make it possible for those who believe to get rid of their sin. That's usually what we preach. That's not what God did. Jesus didn't just deal with the sins of those who come to him. Our Calvinist friends, that's how they rectify this. They say, Jesus only died for people who knew would come. It's not what God said. God said, I died for everybody. Everybody can come. I've dealt with their sin so that they can come. In fact, the scripture tells us that Jesus tasted death for all mankind. 
not just for all who would believe. Hebrews 2.9 says this. But we see this same Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. In other words, for that purpose. <laughs> so he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So why did Jesus taste death for every man? <laughs> because the wages of sin is death. And every human sins. And there was no way for us to get out of the power of sin. To get mankind out from underneath the power and presence of sin and the judgment of sin, which is death, Jesus went into death on our behalf, taking all the sin and all of the sin's judgment with him. John 12, 31 and 32 says this, Now, love that now, now is the judgment of the world. When is this now? Is that now now? <laughs> nope, that now was then. <laughs> he says now, at this time, is the judgment of this world. Judgment for what? For sin. <laughs> now shall the prince of this world be cast out, cast out of heaven. He doesn't get to go and visit there anymore. 32, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all judgment unto me. Now I inserted the word judgment because the translators inserted the word men. <laughs> Neither word is actually there in the Greek. <laughs> but the context of this statement is the statement before. Judgment. He's not talking about drawing all men to himself. He's talking about getting rid of the judgment so that all people can come. If he doesn't deal with the judgment of sin, nobody can come because nobody is sinless. He's got to fix the sin problem between God and man. This is about Jesus taking our place and all of our judgment and all of the penalty for all sin. Verse 33. This he said signifying what death he should die. We know he died for the sins. <laughs> he died the death as the world's representative sacrificial lamb. Jesus came to rescue us from the power, the presence, and the penalty of sin. Now, we still have consequences to our actions. Law of sowing and reaping still applies. You sow stupid, you reap stupid. <laughs> There's no getting around that. <laughs> but he will be with us even in our stupid. <laughs> Jesus came to rescue the whole world. He did not come to condemn it or to pass judgment on it. He came to reconcile it back to God the Father. We see this truth in 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Would our Father, our God, punish the same sin twice? Would that be right? Would that be fair? <laughs> Could he judge the same sin twice? No. We know that. Should a judge call people out of prison and say, you did really bad things, we're going to make you stay even longer. <laughs> We would say, no, you can't do that. He can't pay the punishment twice. Neither can our sins be punished twice. Now remember, 
I'm not talking about sowing and reaping. You commit adultery, you're likely to end up divorced. That's not God's judgment. That's just being stupid and reaping stupid. <laughs> so God is not bringing judgment on the unsaved because of their sins are not being held against them. Remember the tower that Jesus talked about? <laughs> he said, this tower fell and all kinds of people died. Do you think that was because they were great sinners? You know what they would have said? Yes, <laughs> because they must be incurring God's judgment. See how they died for Pete's sakes. Isn't that judgment? And Jesus said, oh, you people. <laughs> no, that's not the judgment of God. That's an accident. It's very common for our human brain to want to pass judgment and declare that what we see happening is the judgment of God. Oh, about six months or so ago, uh, a minister that I occasionally listened to died of cancer. Big strapping fellow, you know, weightlifter, looks like the picture of health. He got cancer and he died. You know, my brain did first thing. What did he do <laughs> to deserve that? What did he teach that he shouldn't have? Ooh, hmm. People in glass houses <laughs> should not be casting stones of judgment. But that's what our natural brains do. That is how the old covenant people saw everything. If you were blessed, God loved you. If you looked like you were cursed, God was mad. That's not our covenant. <laughs> our covenant is the righteous, free standing of God's grace to make us righteous simply by faith. All of our judgment has passed away. It went into death. The judgment for sin is death. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, become reconciled to God. God already reconciled. He took care of the sin. Because if we had our sins, we couldn't come to him. You're full of sin, sorry. <laughs> Love to have you come over, but you would die. <laughs> but what they're imploring the hearer to do, God has reconciled you. He's made himself friendly to you. Become friendly to him. Accept God's friend request. Let God be who he is in your life. I looked up the word reconciled in the Webster's 1828, and it said this. Reconcile means to conciliate anew, which just means to reconcile, <laughs> to make friendly again, to call back into union and friendship the affections which have been alienated. Those affections that were alienated were ours. They were never God's. <laughs> when man fell, he lost his little doggy brain, <laughs> and he only sees through his own lens. And he sees God as bad. God is mean. God is angry. God is judgmental. The old covenant saints did not see God as father. They didn't see God as love. I don't think this says anywhere in the Old Testament that God is love. What was the two first commandments? Love the Lord thy God and love your neighbor as yourself. And the New Testament says that's the whole law. Love. <laughs> so God wanted to bring us back to him. He took away the problem. He took away the sin that separated us so that he could say, come, come be my friend. <laughs> I want to be your friend. That's what they're talking about. This was to restore. Reconcile is to restore to a place of friendship and favor after there's been an estrangement. 
the day Adam sinned, man was estranged from God until the blood of Jesus Christ was shed. Mankind was separated from the life of God because of sin. So in order for God to reunite us with himself, he reconciled the whole world to himself. In other words, he took away the barrier of sin that kept mankind separated from him and made it possible for all mankind to come back into relationship with him. God dealt with all of humanity's sins at the cross. That means they're already judged and already paid for so that he wouldn't have to hold mankind's sins against them. So if this is true, and it is, does that mean that all humans are saved because all humans are reconciled? Nope. If you think about salvation, two steps, the cross and the resurrection. <laughs> the cross dealt with sin. The resurrection dealt with people, dealt with the power and life of God. He had to get rid of the sin so he could come and live inside of us. <laughs> if you don't deal with the sin first, they can't come. I like to think of it like this. Jesus died both for us, on our behalf, he carried sin because we couldn't. We were sinful. That would just be justice. There wouldn't, there wouldn't be any redemption. <laughs> so he died for us, but then he also died as us. When Jesus took the penalty for all the acts of sin on the cross, he provided reconciliation. In other words, he opened the way to the Holy of Holies, where the Old Testament saints were never allowed to go, only the high priest and once a year. Coming into the very presence of God was something they never experienced. Jesus opened the way to the Holy of Holies where God lives by the tearing of his flesh, which was the tearing of the veil. And he opened the way for God to come to us and for us to come to God so that we could be reunited. Jesus opened the way to the Holy of Holies and he had the audacity to invite the whole world to come in. The whole world. Jesus basically told them, you don't have to be afraid of our Father. He's not mad at your sins. He's not mad at you because of your sins. He's not going to strike you dead. That's what they used to have to be afraid of. He's not going to strike you dead when you come into his court. The Father is not holding your sins against you. He says this to the whole world. The Father's not holding your sins against you. Therefore, come to God freely and confidently and let him save you. Let him rescue you from the power and presence of sin that lives within you. That's salvation. You see, the reconciliation of the cross is Jesus opening the way into the Holy of Holies where no man could go. But salvation is Jesus coming and bringing the Holy of Holies into us. Jesus died for us and Jesus died as us. The for us part is applied to everyone. That doesn't mean you're saved. It just means Jesus took care of the sin debt. He had to do that so he could get everybody in who wanted to come. Romans 5, 10, and 11 says this. For if when we were enemies, <laughs> this just blows my mind. Not one single person on the face of the earth was saved. <laughs> everybody was or thought they were God's enemy. And while they're in that messy state, God says, I am going to reconcile you. 
or I am going to make the way friendly. You can come back again. I'm going to take care of all the sins, so sin is never your issue. I'm not going to judge you for sins because I've already judged your sins in the body of Christ. Mankind was separated from the life of God because of sin. Very clear in scripture. So in order for God to reunite us with himself, he had to first reconcile the whole world to himself. (laughs) In other words, he took the barrier of sin that kept mankind separated from him out of the way. He made it possible for all mankind to come into relationship with him. All of his goodness, all of his grace, knowing that there was not one thing we could do to save ourselves. God took the problem, sin, and dealt with it so that we could have God deal with what we were. God dealt with all of humanity's sins at the cross so that he wouldn't have to hold mankind's sins against them. Isn't that amazing? God isn't holding people's sins against them, even the ones who don't want to be rescued. (laughs) He says, you don't have to be rescued, but you are automatically reconciled, is what I have done for you. But it only becomes effective when you receive it. Does this mean that all humans are saved? No. Reconciliation provides the opportunity for mankind to come to know God and to be received into his family. Romans 5.11, and not only so, but we also joy in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. It was provided. It's all done on God's part, but you have to receive it. The as-us part of what Jesus did can only be apprehended, received, and experienced by faith in Jesus' finished works. So when we believe on Jesus, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the death of Christ. And our old man of sin is killed off. And the new born-again spirit man is raised to new life in Christ. And we see this in Romans 6. I have it for you in the Passion Translation. Sharing in his death by our baptism means that we were co-buried and entombed with him. So that when the Father's glory raised Christ from the dead, we were also raised with him. We have been co-resurrected with him so that we could be empowered to walk in the freshness of a new life. For since we are permanently grafted into him to experience a death like his, then we are permanently grafted into him to experience a resurrection like his and the new life that it imparts. Could it be any clearer that our former identity, I love that, the former identity is now and forever deprived of its power. For we are co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us so that we would not continue to live one moment longer submitted to sin's power. I love the way the passion says, our old man is our former identity. (laughs) We are constantly renewing our mind to our true identity because that former identity learned a whole bunch of stuff that was wrong. (laughs) Our old identity was always the real problem for mankind. God had to make a way for mankind to be able to come to him and receive his life. So he reconciled the whole world to himself through the sin payment provided by Jesus. Jesus opened the way to the Father by paying the penalty for our sinful actions. He paid our sin debt so that in God's eyes, everyone was reconciled or brought back into God's favor and friendship as far as God was concerned. Since Jesus paid everyone's sin debt, 
God is not counting sins against them. But that doesn't really help humanity in and of itself because humanity's real problem was our sinful identity. All of this happened at once, but if we kind of take it apart and we understand our sinful actions are all taken care of by the cross and our sinful nature is taken care of by the resurrection. The cross dealt with what we did. The resurrection deals with what we are. You have to have both to have salvation. That's why God can say, no, I'm not holding your sins against you. But that doesn't make you saved. <laughs> He's like, it doesn't do you any good unless you get part two. <laughs> and we can see this truth in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. This is in the ESV version. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The word nations here causes people to stumble because they think God is going to judge an entire nation. It's not what that word means. <laughs> that word in the Strong's is ethnos, and it means people groups. <laughs> the Strong says it refers to a race, and it has in parentheses, as of the same habit. That refers to culture. People of different colors <laughs> and traditions all live in the same area. That was about culture. And it says that is a tribe. We understand tribe, those who are of the same beliefs, of the same genealogy. Again, you can think of color and religion. It specifically refers to a foreign, non-Jewish one, usually, and usually means the pagans. But Jesus didn't say the Gentile nations. He said all <laughs> of the nations. Israel would not have liked that. Israel would not have appreciated Jesus grouping them in the group of Gentiles who were not right with God. So the term all nations refers even to the nation of Israel. All nations. And so Jesus says that he's the king over all people groups. <laughs> he's not talking about nations individually. All people groups. And out of every ethnicity and people group, Jesus will find that there are sheep and there are goats <laughs> in every people group. So this parable isn't about God judging an entire nation for the sins of some. In fact, even under the old covenant, God said every human being is accountable only for his own sins. We can see this in Ezekiel chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Here, God scolding him. <laughs> the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. And as I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins is the one that dies. In this passage, God clearly says, that each person is responsible for their own sins and that the judgment for their parents' sins do not fall on the sons. Not anymore, God said. That may have been the way it used to be. He says, not doing it that way anymore. <laughs> You're not going to use this parable in reference to me. Now, this is the old covenant, but the truth remains. God isn't passing out judgment on entire nations of people because of the sins of some who live therein. 
Each person is held only accountable for their own sins, which, by the way, under the new covenant, have already been paid for by the blood of Jesus. So God is not going to judge America for the sins of some of her leaders and lawmakers. He can't judge their sins twice. That wouldn't be fair or just. And he tells us in Ezekiel, he's not going to do that. (laughs) Everyone stands before God all by themselves. But sin, sin does have the ability to bring forth destruction. America can have bad leadership. Yes, it can. (laughs) And that bad leadership can put the whole country into a recession or into military conflicts. And bad leadership brings bad results. But it's not God's judgment. It's fruit the fruit of their actions. That's why we are called to pray for our leaders, the ones we don't like and the ones we do, (laughs) because it's God's desire to rescue America from her own bad decisions as a nation and her own bad leadership. But we need to keep believing that God is in the midst of everything and that he is in the process of turning all things for good for those who love him. That scripture says, for those who love him. That doesn't mean everyone's going to have the same protection and favor and grace that we enjoy. They could. But he says, I turn all things for good for those who love him. And that's because they're believing in him. (laughs) So we need to keep believing that God is at work on behalf of the righteous who live in this country. And we need to stop believing that the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, is just waiting for an opportunity to destroy America because of the sins of some of her leaders. Instead, we need to keep praying and keep believing in our Father's goodness. We need to declare the truth that our country is blessed because we live in it. (laughs) We live in it. We pull down the blessing of God so everybody else can participate. (laughs) We're blessed coming in and we're blessed going out and we're blessed in the city and we're blessed in the field. We're blessed because of Jesus, not because we're so good. (laughs) We are empowered by Jesus to prosper in every area of our lives, regardless of what the government does or doesn't do. We don't have to participate in recessions. We don't have to participate in pandemics. We don't have to participate. (laughs) We have been rescued. So we don't need to fear that God is bringing some kind of judgment on our country because of the sins of other Americans. Let's go back to the sheep and the goats for a minute here. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. That's us. Inherit the kingdom physically, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. From that point in the story, Jesus goes on to tell the sheep, the ones on the right, the ones who have favor, about their sheep-like things that they have done to their fellow man. Jesus recounts them ministering to the sick and the poor and the imprisoned. And Jesus tells them that he counts their actions as having been done unto him. After that, he speaks to the goats on the left. In verse 41, he says, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Then Jesus continues to tell the goats all the goat-like things that they did (laughs) and that they were guilty of, which could be summed up by saying they failed to take care of their fellow man. And Jesus accounted it as if they had failed to take care of him. Verse 46, Jesus says this, These goats on the left shall go into everlasting punishment, 
but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. What I like about this parable is that what each individual was in their nature was what they appeared as before the throne of Christ. Jesus didn't decide their destinations. He didn't wait for them to get there and decide if they're a sheep or a goat. They came in <laughs> to that realm as they were before they died. Jesus didn't decide their destinations. They did that to themselves while they were on earth. All Jesus did was bring forth the evidence of their true nature and identity. That's why he said, see your works? This is the evidence. <laughs> I have evidence in case you want to argue with me. <laughs> their true identities bore fruit in their lives as either good works of love and compassion or the absence of good works of love and compassion. But it wasn't the absence of good works that made a goat a goat. And it wasn't the presence of good works that made a sheep a sheep. <laughs> it was their own choice of either accepting or rejecting Jesus that gave them their identity. Who and what we are on this side of death's door is who and what we will be on the other side of death's door. So salvation isn't about getting us to just behave better. Does God like it when we behave better? Sure he does. <laughs> but salvation is about changing our identity from a goat into a sheep. From a sinner into a saint. From a slave of sin into a son of God who walks in true freedom. From all the power and presence and dominion of sin. It's also about rescuing us from a real destiny where a man is forever separated from the kind and quality of God's eternal life. Hell, whatever that looks like, was never something God wanted for mankind. But mankind has been given the right to refuse Jesus. Our Father has provided everything that was needed to rescue all of mankind from the power and presence and penalty of sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. God's desire is to rescue every man, Unfortunately, not every man wants to be rescued. God has paid for the sins of every person who went to hell. They went there not guilty of their acts of sin. He didn't judge them for that. He judged them for what they were. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? The word rescue in the Webster's 1828 says this. It means to free or deliver from any confinement, violence, danger, or evil. God has already done that. It is a finished work. He has pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness and he put us, he didn't even ask us, <laughs> and put us in a new location, the kingdom of God. God has sent out an army, an army of one, and his name is Jesus. And he has forever provided our rescue from every confinement, from every violence, from every danger, and from every evil. God will rearrange you. He will choreograph you so you are in the right place at the right time so that bad things don't happen to you. God is always at work in the midst and on our behalf. He's always going before and moving stuff, especially if you ask him to. <laughs> if we understand that everything that we have need of has already been granted to us, because of the finished works of Jesus, then when we pass through the fires of life or the floods of despair, we don't have to just hope that our Father has heard our prayer. We don't have to just hope 
that he's at work somewhere on our behalf. We don't have to just hope that he can find us in the middle of the darkest night. We can know that our Father and our Jesus are with us, <laughs> that he never leaves us, he never abandons us, he doesn't have to go find us because he lives in us. <laughs> if we know what he's already provided and that it's all available in the now by faith in what he's done for us, then we don't have to be afraid afraid of the end of the world or the afraid of judgment or the afraid of anything. We don't have to be afraid of anything. We're not slaves to fear. We're slaves to righteousness, praise God. When I was thinking about this concept, I thought, how do you make it real, Lord? How do we make this truth real? And God said to me, he said, well, if I gave you a bank account with $500 trillion in it, <laughs> but he gets to manage it. In other words, no one can go and get it. I have to go to my father for him to release my funds. He says, would you believe he would do that? Because the name on the account is yours. Everything in it belongs to you. So when we come to the father and God, God, I need 100 trillion. <laughs> He's like, sure, I'll release it. That's what he does. When we believe he releases it, it's all safe for us. Where nobody else can take it or steal it. Robbers can't get to it. It's all provided for us. And we just believe that God says yes to every promise. Yes and amen to everything that's done. It all belongs to us. Everything in the kingdom belongs to us. But it's only apprehended by faith by believing that it already exists. My account is full of all the goodness of God and I can pull on it now at any time. It's a trust account, yes. <laughs> we have been rescued. And all the unbelievers in the world have also been rescued. He's provided it. He's not holding their sins against them. So the cross did what the cross meant to do, pay the sin debt for the whole world. God reconciled the world to himself, but the world needs to receive that reconciliation. Part two, <laughs> we need to have the indwelling Christ, the indwelling Savior and Deliverer of all mankind. Amen? Father God, we thank you for your work. I thank you for reconciliation. It's the craziest thing. <laughs> Why would you forgive a bunch of sinners, God? <laughs> Why would you do for us what we could not do ourselves? Why did you love us so much that you came and took our place? You came and took our judgment. You came and rescued us from who we were. You gave us your very life and you made us yours, your bride, your sons, your sheep. And Father God, we are so very grateful for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.